As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Fresh off a four-hour tour to force on radio. Uh, hopefully the listeners aren't tired of us. Uh, I certainly am not tired of you, Drancer, and I hope the same goes uh, you for me. Uh, but that was really our warm-up act, as uh, we save our, our really good material for the VanCast here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know what? That was a good show, though. I thought that was my best show of the week anyway. You, you brought the best out of me, you know? You're a force enhancer for me, <laughs> J-Pat. And, uh, but excited to be with you again in the more comfortable confines of our usual podcasting audio space. Um, and excited to, to chat with the VanCast listeners. Of course, if you want more VanCast this week only, uh, you can also check out the Halford and Bruff podcast. We are talking for four hours in it. <laughs> Yeah, and we'll do our best to cover some new ground here, yeah. just so that our loyal listeners uh, that were with us on the radio uh, get something out of this podcast as well. Uh, look, I, I think we both thought that maybe this was going to be the week that uh, Hub Cities, at the very least, were announced, uh, working our way closer to that proposed date of July the 10th for uh, the start of these training camps. But uh, when we see news like we saw out of Florida earlier in the day as we record this, uh, the Tampa Lightning shutting down their facility. Like You get why the NHL is taking every precious second it can uh, before settling on the two hub centers. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, the, I just tweeted it, but the wisdom of the NHL's decision to wait. And, and I want to be very clear that I'm not commenting on the wisdom of the NHL's eventual decision, right? Like, things could still change. The NHL could announce on Tuesday that they're picking Vegas and and Edmonton and, you know, one or both hub city locations could be in outbreak mode three weeks later by the time, you know, we're really getting down to brass tacks and moving into phase four. So, you know, I want to be very careful about sort of what I'm saying here, but the NHL's basic insight, which was let's wait, let's wait, 
We have a short list of 10. We're going to wait and evaluate it as we go here. That basic insight has served them very well. And in comparison with, you know, what we are seeing out of Florida today, I mean, we've seen big numbers out of Florida all week, but today, 3,800 new cases, five Philadelphia Phillies players uh, seem to have tested positive in Clearwater. The Tampa Bay Lightning Phase 2 facility has closed uh, as a result of some positive tests there, uh, news that leaked and ultimately did not get handled by the league office. So we'll, we're going to see sort of how this unfolds. But you would think, too, that, you know, A, these positive tests out of Florida will give the league pause in making their selection. And B, you, you do have to wonder what impact this could have on Tampa Bay's inclusion in a 2014 format. Absolutely. I you know, and, and I think you'd be naive to think that there weren't going to be a few more uh, hockey test positives here. Like we yep. we heard, you know, early on, Ottawa, uh, Colorado had its run. I think a Pittsburgh Penguin player was identified, an Arizona Coyote staff member. But just with the outbreaks and the spikes uh, around the United States, uh, you had to sense that there were going to be a few more. And so, uh, you know, let's keep our eye on, you know, so much talk about a place like Vegas. Remember, it has just been, it's been two weeks essentially since casinos reopened and people uh, were starting to head back to a city like Vegas. And so uh, as much as the NHL may have its eyes on Vegas and Vegas may have its eyes on the National Hockey League, you know, if uh, the numbers continue to rise there or that becomes a hot spot, you know, the league may have to change here uh, on the fly. And so that's why I say like every second matters right now. But at the same time, they are up against a deadline at some point. Like a decision does have to come here uh, because as we've been saying on the podcast, and we're not alone in this, but, you know, teams like the Canucks and really all the Canadian teams, if the quarantine is still in place, you know, they've got to come up with a plan B for a training camp. And that can't just come up overnight. I'm sure a lot of the groundwork is being done behind the scenes right now. Uh, but, you know, decisions have to be made and plans have to be executed. So uh, it's fine for the NHL to take it's time through the weekend and maybe even as far as a week from now. But, man, I, I can't see it going beyond a week from now. Like, I would think by next Friday, which is the draft lottery, uh, was supposed to be the draft. Like, I, I kind of get the sense that next week is going to be, I mean, the Hall of Fame. It, it's going to be a, a fairly meaty, weighty news week for the National Hockey League next week. Yeah, absolutely it will be. And, you know, a CBC investigative reporter just sort of quote tweeted me, as I'm speaking and just said, you know, is sports even worth bringing back at this point? And when I look at the KBO and I look at the Bundesliga, right? The Bundesliga has now been playing for a month. The KBO has now been playing for six weeks and there have, it has not been seamless in either case, but the KBO hasn't had to shut down because of a positive test, despite, you know, isolated incidents and, and not entirely isolated. I mean, some significant incidents of spread in South Korea and likewise in Germany, a variety of issues, you know, pertaining to an entire Bundesliga League One team, you know, having to essentially be quarantined out of the competition because of a widespread outbreak on that club or, you know, a coach breaking the quarantine rules to go buy toothpaste and being unable to coach his team. I mean, you know, it hasn't been smooth. These sort of substantive examples that we have in other countries indicate how difficult and messy and, you know, tricky just overall this is going to be if we're going to have sports again. I still think it's worth 
trying to do, not just because the NHL has to safeguard their business and, and losing the rest of the season could fundamentally alter the league as we know it, but also just because I think it, I think there's a public good in having some sense of, of televised normal, you know, in, in the world. Like, I honestly do believe that's a worthwhile pursuit if it can be done safely. And, and we've seen in two countries that it can be done safely, but it's worth noting too that across the board, those countries have lapped what certainly the United States and honestly, arguably Canada, with perhaps the exception of British Columbia, have managed to do in terms of implementing public policy to safeguard public health and contain the virus to the best best of their abilities. And I just think that's really important context to keep in mind as the league moves into, you know, attempting something, uh, physical competition in the midst of a pandemic that basically has never been done and that from every example we've got to this point is possible but is so insanely difficult and, you know, will test the best administrative minds in the professional sporting industry in the months, weeks and months to come. Yeah. And I think your examples of Korean baseball and overseas soccer, you know, those two sports in the field of play um, lend themselves to physical distancing for the most part, right? Like we haven't yet seen hockey, a contact sport in a confined area, basketball, 10 guys, in the same half of a court running around and football has a little bit of time on its side, but ultimately, you know, sort of the ultimate contact sport uh, where guys are just running into each other uh, at all times on every play. So, uh, you know, these are all things like, you know, Tampa shutting down its facility phase two is voluntary. It's small groups. It's just a handful of guys on the ice. You know, we haven't even seen the entire teams and full staffs and all that kind of stuff together. So uh, absolutely all sorts of red flags. And, you know, I think we've been pretty clear on the podcast. Like, look, we both love hockey. We want it to return. Uh, we cover it for our living. But I think we've both been pretty realistic that while the league has laid out this return to play plan, remember Gary Bettman and the, the Zoom call, you know, it was short on details. And I think, you know, through this whole thing, there's always been a part of me, at least in the back of my mind, saying, hey, give it a try. You know, give it the old college try. Uh, do it safely, but ultimately they may get to a point, whether it's health and safety, whether it's cost, whether it's combination of both, where the league says, we exhausted every yeah. avenue, we tried, we just totally. can't and make it fly. And uh, I mean, Pierre you know, Lebron, we're not there the yet, but I, that still remains a distinct possibility. The overall, you know, <laughs> the overall fact of the matter, too, is that the, you know, real threat is starting up and having to close, and that's sort of what makes the Florida example in the experiment the NBA seems uh, I mean we'll see if today's news and you know what what's become I mean we can't ignore this anymore like there is significant community spread going on in Orange County in you know the Orlando area of Florida uh, really a scary level uh, a, a peak potentially and and you know I think there's going to be Wow, I mean, look, if you're if you're returning 10% of COVID tests that are positive, we've seen across the board through this pandemic to this point that that tends to lead to, you know, a, a scary wave with really dire con health consequences for communities. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully there is a better outcome on the horizon uh, for, you know, the people in my former home state. 
Uh, certainly I'm hopeful of that more than anything, even as I try and cover this dispassionately with, uh, with a cerebral sort of bent just based on the challenges. But I mean, I find it difficult to see those numbers and read those stories out of Clearwater, out of Tampa Bay and not, you know, really just be not feel like I did in mid-March again, you know, just like, oh goodness, like this is a terrifying prospect for those localities and certainly present a variety of other challenges uh, in terms of leagues looking at return to play scenarios. All right, well, let's leave all of that behind for a little while because it is a podcast dedicated to coverage of the Vancouver Canucks and uh, you got a couple of pieces up at The Athletic uh, hopefully you and Harm kept your physical distance when you uh, collaborated on uh, the piece that you guys wrote on comparables for sort of the the key core young members of the Vancouver Canucks. You did this with the prospects not that long ago, and now you've sort of moved on to the guys that have moved beyond prospect status that are here and now and playing for the Canucks, and in many cases leading the Vancouver Canucks. So we want to get to that. Also, fun story, and I remember you, uh, you've been sitting on it for a while uh, but I remember you doing the groundwork in Minnesota when you spent a day with Shorty and Cheech and sort of a behind-the-scenes piece on life in the broadcast booth of a Canucks telecast. So want to get to to that and, and some of the, the thoughts there. But as far as the comparables go, just like walk me through what you think is the benefit for the listener and the fan and the reader, obviously, to sort of setting goalposts High sure. end and low end when it comes to uh, these key Vancouver Canucks. Well, comparables are an old classic, and the example that I love is Patrick Kane's comp, uh, or sorry, Jordan Schrader's comparable was stronger Patrick Kane. Right, like that's always my favorite <laughs> one that I'll always bring up, just because stronger. Like, what does stronger Patrick Kane even mean? First of all, uh, but secondly, you know, just if you're picking comparables based on like, Oh, this guy's the same from the same country and is roughly the same height. Like, what are you accomplishing? Literally bupkis. So first of all, our very approach to this is objective, right? We are not just pulling guys who remind us of a guy or like all Swedes must be compared to Swedes, right? Like that's not how we do this. We go through and break down based on the history of the sport. And it's really the contemporary history of the sport. So I'm not looking at players in the eighties when defenders as Paul Coffey did one season had a hundred points here and there, right? Like that never happens in the, in the, you know, you hit 86 points. That's a historic season (laughs) these days uh, as Eric Carlson did like once. So, you know, we are looking at the modern NHL game and we are picking out players and, and building comparables based on age Right, So a 20-year-old can only be comparable to another 20-year-old. Height, a 6'3 guy, we're looking ideally for a 6'2 or a 6'4 guy. Like roughly the same dimensions. Because in part, uh, the dimensions and height and size of a player also influences coaching decisions, right? That influence opportunity, that influence management, and on and on. So height is something we're paying close attention to. Finally, we're paying attention to points per game rate and scoring rates. So this is hard production from players and how they compare to players who were a similar build, a similar age, and produced at a similar level. And and again, this isn't perfect. This isn't an exact science. There are always going to be outliers, guys who just, you know, come out of nowhere at the age of 27. I mean, if you were trying to find comparables for Jacob Markstrom at 24, right, it, it would look very different than trying to find comparables for Markstrom at the age of 30 based on, you know, the uncanny path to 
being a high-end NHL goaltender, starting NHL goaltender that Markstrom has taken. So uh, there's always going to be deviations, outliers, odd examples. But the purpose of this and the value in these in this exercise is to give fans a range of historical outcomes based on players who, again, similar height, similar age, similar production stats, produ- production rates, and what they they went on to accomplish over the course of their NHL careers. So Elias Pettersson, the high end was Steven Stamkos, just the other hand, yep. right? And yep. the low end was Paul Stastny. Well, and, you know, <laughs> when you look at, like, when we built this list, and this is such a funny thing to go over, and I'm glad, actually, that I have a chance to do so because I didn't on the radio. But when you build the comparables for Elias Pettersson, we got 30 guys, which is pretty rare, like 30 21-year-olds similar height, similar build, have produced at a similar rate over the course of their NHL career. And there's some wingers in there that sort of are interesting, but, like, we're not really that interested in doing cross-positional comps. Like, we look at it, but it's not something we wait as much as centermen. Let me give you the full rundown of the centermen who came up when we tried to compare Petey to them. Jonathan Taves, Patrice Bergeron, Alexi Yashin, John Tavares, Anze Kopitar, Jason Spezza, Paul Stasny, Nicholas Backstrom, Brad Richards, Evgeny Malkin, Ryan O'Reilly, Tyler Sagan, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Patrick Marlowe, Steven Stamkos. Like, you don't get a starrier list of comps than that, and I think it just underscores how ridiculous Elias Pettersson has been over his two seasons, but especially this past year. Like, his comps are literally 10 of the 15 best centermen of the last 30 years, right? It's it's insane. So Stamkos is on the higher end, but he actually, like, the other guy we considered was Sagan, and we like both because they both occupy that spot on the power play. They're high. A lot of that production was power play goals, just like it is for Petey, uh, even though they're both right-handed. But in terms of who Pedersen's a closer match to, like, he's actually a closer match to Steven Stamkos, who was a 90-ish point player in his age 21 season. You know, and Pedersen would have been an 82-ish point player if he'd finished out the season based on his scoring rates at the time of the pause. He's actually a closer comp to him than he is to Tyler Sagan, who was like a 65-point guy while playing with Patrice Bergeron and and Brad Marchand, like very arguably better line mates than Pedersen played with. Uh, So, you know, it's, again, it's just, it's a marvelous sort of a profile that we're evaluating Pedersen on and, you know, Stamkos is a through-the-roof talent, right? I don't think Pedersen's necessarily ever going to have a season where he scores 48 goals the way that Stamkos did as a 22-year-old <laughs> at even strength. I know, right? That's insane. Insane. Yeah. No one else was even over 43 uh, since the lockout. I mean, just like literally crooked numbers. But Stamkos is about as good as we can do, and, and I do think that's another comp where it's like people know Pedersen's good, but people also because... It's hard sometimes to see what's in front of your face, even when it's when it's a special player like Pedersen. Like people know they're excited about Pedersen, but you know you sit back and understand in context just how good he's been. It's like this guy really has a chance to be, you know, uh, among the best centermen in the NHL for a long, long time. And and if this comparable process can sort of reinforce anything, you know, that's that's one major takeaway from it. Yeah, well, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said there, but it's awfully, I mean, it's clear that he's not one of the best 16 centers in the National Hockey League no. just yet. <laughs> Sorry, NHL.com. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, we have spent a lot of time, as you can imagine, on this podcast over the season talking about Quinn Hughes. And when we talk about comparables, I know that you get a kick out of the fact that like his season was so unique, so rare, so incredible that really he's in a league of his own. Yeah, we had to cheat. We literally had to cheat <laughs> to create comparables for him, uh, which is always fun, right? Like we literally had to adjust his height in order to find a comparable that matched, um, which is just ridiculous. And and when we did, the only comparable we got was Drew Doughty. And even Drew Doughty's age 20 season, in which, by the way, he shot 11%, very Kale McCarr-like shooting percentage numbers that he never managed to recreate again over the course of his career. Even then, Drew Doughty comes in at 0.7 points per game while Quinn Hughes comes in at 0.78. So it's like, it's close, but it's not that close, right? Uh, that's how good Quinn Hughes was. We've literally, in the modern era, never seen a 20-year-old defender do what Quinn Hughes did this year. And we couldn't... There's no low-end comparable because Drew Doughty's the only guy we could produce. And even then, we had to lie to our own model to get that. So, uh, you know, pretty pretty incredible stuff. And I did enjoy, too. Like, once I saw that Quinn Hughes's age 20 season was literally unprecedented, I was like, okay, I got to check Makar just to see... And the fact that Makar's season was also <laughs> unprecedented, it's just like, I actually don't know. Like, I wrote about that race more than anyone else in the industry, right. for sure. Yes, yes, you did. I, I made a, give you I made that a, crown. I made a big deal of it. And looking at those comps and recognizing what I did as I did so, I'm like, I don't think I gave this enough attention. Like, I don't think I understood while covering it obsessively how singular this race was in the context of NHL history. We've just never seen anything like it. We've never seen a rookie defenseman class like we saw in the, you know, pandemic abbreviated 2019-20 campaign. And, and honestly, it was a lot of fun to witness, something that I'll remember fondly for the rest of my career. All right. Want to switch gears? Going to talk about Shorty and Cheech. I won't ask you how they smell, uh, although I think the answer is like powdered sugar and cinnamon, uh, <laughs> at least in Minnesota. We'll, yeah. we'll get to that in a sec. But, you know, in my ongoing quest for this to be the best smelling hockey podcast out there, uh, a couple things to keep in mind. Smelling good's important. Hawthorne smells really good. And getting Hawthorne cologne is so easy. You take a quick two-minute quiz. Hawthorne tells you the two colognes that are best for you, one for work, one for play, so you can you know, sort of show a little bit of versatility there. Uh, totally risk-free with free shipping and free returns. Check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co. Use my promo code ATHLETIC and get 10% off your first purchase. That's hawthorne.co. And use the promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. Fun story. A good read. And, you know, you make it abundantly clear that you know, Shorty and Cheech really are part of the Canuck experience. I mean, you and I get to go to, almost, I go to all the games. You've gone to most of the games. But most people aren't fortunate enough to be in attendance uh, all the time. Certainly not the road games. And so, you know, Shorty and Cheech are the conduits for people that watch the Canucks on TV. They've been at it a while. You know, it's funny. I was watching uh, an, an old game last night. I was just flipping by, and the Canucks in Winnipeg were playing 1993. And John Garrett was doing the color with Steve Armitage. Steve Armitage was doing play-by-play. -play. Like, I, I 
can't recall that actually happening happening in in real time. But uh, Steve Armitage, so long a fixture on CBC and Hockey Night in Canada, he was in the mic. He was doing the play by play. But Cheech was doing the color 1993, so he's been at this a while. Yeah, and he and Shorty, uh, you know, there's a 20 year age gap, and yet these guys are thick as thieves. They've become best buds, and I just think that comes across on the telecasts. Yes, and you know, I think it's it is a testament. Like that line is a direct tribute to you, right? The the one line that's like. It's a testament to the fact that they seem like the furniture, right? Like, they seem like the furniture of a Canucks game. Just something that you take for granted. It's comfortable. You enjoy it, you know. But they've only been together 12 years, which seems preposterous. Like, they are the sound of the Canucks. And I remember noting that to you, and you were like, no, they've been together forever. And I was like, no, they haven't. Like, that line is a direct, you know, when you sort of noted that, I was like, yeah, you're right. I can't really remember. Like, I can't remember... Uh, the Houston Garrett experience, really. You know, it just, it, I know I watched a ton of games with them calling it. Like, J- Jim Houston's the sound of the Canucks to me as much as as much as Shorty and Garrett in a lot of ways because of, you know, the playoff games in 2011 and great save Luongo. But, you know, the, the fact that I, to me, when I think about what a Canucks game broadcast sounds like, it sounds like, you know, I, I mean, Jim, uh, Jim Robson, Tommy Larshide for sure, but contemporary Canucks... I think of Shorty and Garrett right away. And, you know, I think there's a, what I want, what I wanted to capture was there is a grind to life on the road in the NHL. And, you know, I, I think I covered it maybe <laughs> more wistfully. Yeah. But I think I covered it more wistfully because of how much I miss it. You know, like I miss it so yeah. much now, but there's yeah. a grind to life in, on the road in the NHL. And boy, is it an awful lot more fun if you like the people you're around and work with. And I think Garrett and Shorty are genuinely buddies. Like, they eat out together almost every game day, almost every night. Like, they are, they travel in a pack. They are each other's, like, road family. And I think that comfort that they have with one another, that kinship, shows through and allows them to call games in a particular, familiar, fun way that has them, you know, ranked, I think, by most Canucks fans. And and Canucks fans in the athletic broadcast media poll, right? The game broadcast poll indicated that they liked their broadcast team more than just about any market in the NHL. Like Canucks fans love, Canucks fans love to complain. And the one thing they all sort of seem to agree on is that Shorty and Cheech are the best. Um, I think that's a product of this familiar, easy relationship. And the fact that it's like having a couple buddies over to your house a couple nights a week to just like watch the game and, and have a laugh with. And, you know, you, they talk junk food, they talk ketchup, uh, they talk stories in the game, they make fun of each other. They, you know, shorty riffs off on ice chatter in a, in a way that's really unique. Like forget being embarrassed when the mic picks up, you know, a, a big loud fuck. Uh, right. Shorty's just like leaning into it, makes a joke out of it. I mean, it's tremendous. And, you know, over time, like there were times where in my earlier, more iconoclastic, you know, humorless days as a stats blogger, I found it annoying on occasion that, you know, Cheech would be like, I am a cheeseburger. And it's like the play is there's a scoring chance happening, man. <laughs> you know, like I used to, I, I wrote a whole story about it. I wrote a whole story about how it bothered me. And as I've worked through my career, you know, participated in the broadcast side, both as a panelist and as a PR guy, as I've come to watch more and more hockey, 
the comfort, the light tone, the self-awareness, the tongue-in-cheek cheek banter between the two, I think is a lot rarer than people realize. They're a true team. There's no competition for airtime. Neither talks to hear themselves talk. I think they exercise tremendous restraint. Like, look no for it further than the shift that the Sedin Twins had against Arizona in their last ever Canucks home game. Like, the word count on Cheech and Garrett from when the goal is scored to the end of the broadcast might be 10. You know what I mean? Like, that matters, man. That's a level of restraint not a lot of broadcasters have if you watch a lot of NHL games uh, done by out-of-market uh, broadcasts. Like, they well, deserve a lot and, of credit, and, and they're and they're tremendous at what they do, and they're good people to be around, too. Yeah, and, and look, I, I made light of the uh, powder donuts or whatever they are. I mean, but that like, – and you – you know, you write about it. If people haven't read the piece, go check it out at The Athletic. Um, but I was glad, and, and you kind of had to, I think. There really wasn't much choice uh, because I do think there are some people that think, oh, the, the whole food thing is shtick, that it's all a put on. But it's so not. much of John and John's relationship does revolve around food, as you said, yeah. and, and, and not particularly highbrow and that's part of the fun too and that's a great little anecdote you've got because Murph is the perfect foil right like Murph's Mr. Fitness and uh, I don't I, like I think he goes along for the ride from time to time but my sense is that that wouldn't be his first choice for food or for uh, places to go but he's a part of that crew as well and so the three of them work remarkably well uh, but absolutely, like when you hear John Garrett talking about Johnny Rockets or whatever, like the hot dogs are real, the pizza, the ketchup, it's all, it's not put on, and Shorty is there every step of the way. Yeah, and Shorty, there was a line that I didn't use in the piece, but Shorty says, what's great about it is Murph takes all these pictures, he takes them of Garrett, I'm eating the same thing off camera, and so Garrett gets tarred with the thing, and I get away scot-free, right? I had a line like that, and I thought about using it, but... Ultimately, you know, my, my favorite part of the day that I spent with them, and I mean, there were a lot of fun parts, but my favorite part of the day that I spent with them was walking, I take the elevator up to the press box at the XL Energy Center, and the host, you know, they have that, they have a little podium, and there's, it's actually pretty unique, they have like a press box host who right. greets you. Yes. And she sees John and she goes, ooh, we're getting donuts tonight. Like, that's her immediate <laughs> reaction on seeing Garrett. And my eyes just widened. I'm like, oh, I know I'm using this in the piece. You know, like I took her name down and everything. And um, and then Steamer, Steamer, when, when Steamer and Garrett, you know, old teammates, both been around the organization forever, know where the bodies are buried, truly. They, you know, when <laughs> and she, Garrett offers him a donut and she, steamer without without missing a beat. No, but I'll take one from the bag in your pocket. Like I was crying laughing. And then and then, you know, because I'm like a very ethical journalist and because, you know, I want to make sure that a guy like Steamer knows I'm not trying to sore him, right? I have this weird moment where I run him down during an intermission and I'm like, "Steamer, uh I know you were just kidding with Garrett and don't realize that I'm writing a piece, but do you mind if I use that quote? <laughs> Steamer's just like, uh, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> but that was uh, that was a good interaction <laughs> with Stan on on both accounts. Uh, look, there's a certain charm there. It's a charm that escaped me as a younger man and that I've come to really embrace now that you know when I get a chance to watch broadcasts on my couch because uh, it's a road game I'm not traveling for or what have you. I find that I enjoy it there's a comfort level it, it sounds like home in a in a very sort of unique way and and i think that's a credit 
to their shtick, their familiarity, and and I think that's why they've become so beloved, iconic anyway, uh, among Canucks fans. Yeah, and it's funny, like, you know, I've been around them for so long now, and I'm at every game, so I, I really haven't sat and watched a, a full game start to finish in a while, but I certainly see the the highlights, and you hear their clips and their calls, and I, I think, you know, and John Shorthouse kind of touched on it in the piece, like, it's a long season, we both know that, they know it, you know, you're not going to have the perfect broadcast 82 times, but, you know, you do want to get the key moments in any game, uh, right, and I think they do a pretty good job of that. And obviously, Shorty's Slay the Dragon call is going to stand the test of time. I mean, all yep. has, and uh, you know, there have been others. But I, I just think, you know, sort of to your point, like for so many people, Canucks hockey is serious business, and these guys are calling games for a living, and yet they kind of find that balance of having fun, amusing themselves in the process, amusing uh, the viewers, but at the same time, making sure that you know, when something big is happening, they're on top of it and they hit it. And I think they do that yeah. more often than not. So it, they do. Uh, and, and you know, just the timing was good. I mean, you know, I thought you might sit on it until we actually get hockey back because, you know, it was Minnesota and it kind of, you know, dovetailed nicely with the fact that the Canucks are going to face Minnesota, but maybe it was the right time to run it just to give us all a little diversion, especially if you know, hockey doesn't ever uh, make it back this summer. So... Uh, good on you. Good piece. Thanks, good fun. Bud. And uh, just it took me it took me back to the rink, which is where I want to be again. I know. I think you do as well. well so and hopefully. I like I heard from Brendan Bachelor because Brendan Bachelor's shouted out at one point in the piece, and he's just like, "This made me laugh." And you know, my response to him was like, "Man, I genuinely really miss you." <laughs> you know, like I do. When when we had Farhan call in, being on the radio with you today, like I just miss. My rink people, like Woodley too, like right. Woodley, having Woodley on, yep. and I'm just like, man, Absolutely. like I'm the same boat. I, I, you know, I'm getting choked up toward the end of his hit. Um, so you know, I just miss my, I miss my conversations at the rink. You, me, Batch, especially. Like, I feel like, you know, sitting down, talking about like, oh, who's so who's uh, who's going after Travis for this one? <laughs> you know, like there's there's just those moments that are that are good fun and sure, no, look, that I miss a morning time. skate is. You know, morning skate is pretty monotonous, but at the same time, it's a great social opportunity, and yeah. uh, I miss that. I miss just sitting around in all the rinks and airports and whatnot, and just yeah. having a chance to to shoot the shit. And and so, uh, you know, the podcast has been good therapy that way because at yep. least we get to Likewise. talk hockey a couple of times a week. Hey, when you speak of familiarity, uh, let's finish up the way we have here for the last bunch of weeks on uh, the Vancast, and that is name that Canuck. <laughs> Uh, I got the first clue the other day, so I'm still riding high. I'm uh, feeling good about myself with that one. So we'll see where we, I think you'll get this one. I know we preface it almost every time with that. But uh, this player broke into the NHL with Philadelphia, spent parts of four seasons in Vancouver, and was traded back to Philly for cash when that was allowed, and then finished his career with a couple of seasons in Hartford. To tie this all together, uh, he was teammates with John Garrett on the Whalers. Hmm. So I'm just trying to think of like, you know, guys who would have played in the early-ish 80s, Philly and Vancouver. Um, I'm thinking there was a guy. I remember there was a guy who was pretty good. And I'm just trying to remember who he was traded. Like, I remember who he was traded for. I don't remember his name. And, but it was, so Larry Goodenough... (laughs) <laughs> which is an unfortunate name for a bad trade, right? Like, if you, if, you, yes. if you trade a good player and get a guy named Goodenough back, 
Um, that's not what no. you want. And he was traded for, um, I want to say, I'm just trying to think. He shares a name with Bill Daly. So it's um, Bob, I'm going to guess Bob Daly as a guy that I know played for the Flyers and the Canucks in that late 80s or early 80s, late 70s and that's period. A, uh, it, it's a great guess. Like That is right in the wheelhouse, just not Bob Daly. But yeah. that you are not, you know, you're totally in the neighborhood there. Okay. Uh, in the summer of 1998, long after his playing days, this guy accompanied Troy Gamble to Russia to support a relationship the Canucks had that would later result in Igor Larionov and Vladimir Krutov playing in Vancouver. Sorry. So he kind of made a goodwill trip to Russia. He traveled to Russia. With Troy Gamble. With Troy Gamble. Mm-hmm. With Troy Gamble, what a weird. That's strange. I know. I don't don't get hung up on Troy Gamble. Like, no, I won't. I don't think that there's a clue in there. Okay. Um, I just thought maybe I thought maybe you had heard this anecdote somewhere along the line. No, no, no. I love it though. I mean, <clears throat> the Igor Larionov thing. The 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 famous trip there is Cliff and uh, and who was the GM of Calgary and um, and Pat Quinn going together. Hmm. Man, this is a tough one, man. I might, I'm worried that I'm going to get only a one-pointer here. I'm very upset with myself. I'm just trying to think through whalers from that like early 80s team. Um, and the, there's only one guy who comes to mind for me, but he was like, you know, like, oh God, I don't even think he played for the Canucks, so he can't be... Um, yeah, like... Okay, so I'm thinking, I, I know those Whalers teams a little bit because of um, those early 80s Whalers teams a little bit because I obviously worked with both Tom Rowe and, and, then jo and then Joel Quenville as well. And I know Rick Lay played for the Whalers, but he never played for the Canucks. He just coached for the Canucks. So I'm just trying to think of the, as I recall in the story, Rick Lay's the guy who gets fired before Quinn takes over, right? The and the story of the Rick Lay firing is that he, the Canucks outshoot the Rangers forty-eight to zero, or less, forty-eight to zero, forty-eight to like fourteen, and lose three nothing in Rick Lay's final Canucks game. And Pat Quinn's like, man, we played well. Like that's not the game that should get a coach fired. And Brian Burke, at least the way Burke tells it, of course, steps in and puts his foot down and says, "We've made this decision. We have to make it now. We can't be making it off the results of one game." And there was apparently a little bit of a split over that. And the guy who had Lay's back, and I don't remember if he played for the Whalers, but I'm going to make this guess anyway, was McElhardy. That's a long way to get to the right answer. Yes! So good for Let you. Let me go. Let's go. But, but I think you've got your stories slightly mixed there. Uh, because it was Bob McCammon. Ah. The Canucks, 62 shots on the New York Rangers Right that night at the Pacific Coliseum, and that was the first time I ever had a press pass. Really, game. that game? And we 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 waited for. I was in university at the time. The campus station out at UBC right. had a press pass. It was my big night. So that's McCam and Talay. And we had to wait like an hour after the game, and I had no idea if that was standard operating procedure <laughs> or uh, 
I was looking at, you know, I didn't really know other media guys at that time. And I was all geeked up because I was going to get to go and talk to Canuck players. And the room was closed for an hour and nobody really knew what was going on. So, you know what? Uh, McElhargy's that- got to have one of the most interesting Canucks careers in the history of the franchise. Like, Jack McElhargy, not only. So it was McCammon, not Lay. So maybe, maybe my, maybe right. my, maybe my story is that McElhargy intervenes and, and says it's Lay. I just remember McElhargy being involved, and I didn't remember if he was a whaler or not, but I knew he had a connection to Rick Lay, who I remember being a, a, a whaler in the early '80s. But the very well done, and I like the the trip to Russia. I, I had no idea sort of where that came from, but I read that the other day. Oh, it makes so my much third sense. clue was going. My third clue was going to give it away, but again, when you talk about interesting careers. Served as head coach of the Canucks minor league affiliates in Milwaukee, Hamilton, and Syracuse. Wow. And was a Canuck assistant under Harry Neal, Tom Watt, Bob McCammon, Pat Quinn, and again under Mark Crawford. Wow. Yeah, you're right. I would have got it based on the Mark Crawford. But the here's the other here's the other fun McElhargy story. Um McElhargy uh picked up Trevor Linden from the airport. Um, when Trevor Linden first came to visit Vancouver, that's like, uh, that's like McElhargy's got his fingerprints and everything. Like if, if it happened to the Canucks between, you know, 1985 and 2005, McElhargy can give you a first person account of it. We, we, you know what? I might see if we can chat with him at some point like that. He, he really has a completely singular perspective on the history of this franchise. All right. Well, good for you. Uh, I wasn't sure. Like I could feel the wheels turning there, but I didn't know if it was going to produce the right result. But good for you. It's a two-pointer. You get Jack McElhargy. Both my guesses uh, were really before... through the back door, eh? <laughs> like I'm like, I got I got to Bob Daly through good enough, who I only remember was a flyer because Tony Gallagher wrote uh, an article in the '80s. Um, that I remember reading for the book, but he had a line just making fun of Goodenough's name for like three paragraphs. And I was like, this is so singularly savage that you'd never see it outside of Vancouver. It's also so Tony. And so it's just stuck with me. And that's why, uh, but anyway, that was good. I, you know what? That was a really good Jack McElroy, good, good, good conversation coming out of that. Good, good clues. Well done, sir. Yeah, who would have thought that we would have devoted that much of a segment to Jack Mack, but uh, glad we did. Hey, before we run, if you're looking for other pod options here at The Athletic, Mike Emmerich, Doc, Pierre Lebrun, and Scott Burnside's guest on Two Man Advantage. Uh, So check that out, and again, check out our comments section for each podcast episode we do at The Athletic app. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, thoughts, comments, concerns, questions, anything goes, uh, topics that we should touch on, uh, guests that we should run down. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to rate and subscribe The VanCast on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash TheVanCast, you'll get 40% off your subscription. And before we run, we know that most of you listeners are going to gather on Sunday with dear old dad. You'll, uh, you know, big family gathering. Fire up your favorite podcaster and make the VanCast part of your special day. I think that's <laughs> Yeah, see if he knows the Jack McElhargy clue for three points. Exactly. The whole family could play name that Canuck. For Durancer, it's J-Pat. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Uh, thanks so much for your support. Uh, we'll check in next week. Maybe we'll get some Hub Cities. Uh, who knows? But uh, we'll be all over it, uh, all over all things Canucks here on the VanCast at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com. Athletic.com.